attempt to teach once a month, and I'm in this series about passing on faith to subsequent generations. Uh, and as a preface, I want to uh, mention last month um, we were talking about the importance of the church and particularly the family in its important role in passing on that faith. And afterwards, I had some of the saints, several of you, come and say, you know, very graciously, you know, uh, when you talk about responsibility for uh, raising up children and getting them on the right path and all that, it sometimes brings about painful memories with a, a stray child and that sort of thing. And I get that. Uh, and whenever we talk about relationships in a message, we face the same issue, whether it's a stray child or a marriage that's not anymore or Mother's Day or Father's Day, which have a whole bunch of issues depending on your relationships and that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, it was not my intent, and, and uh, please forgive me for any unintended insensitivity. Christy and I have suffered some of those same experiences as parents, but the, the reason we talk about these things that remind us of hurts is because life goes on and we need to accept where God has us right now and how we're going to use those experiences, painful as they may be, to strengthen and secure our faith. We need to learn from those experiences and we need to seek the best possible relationships we can at, at, at all times. And, you know, and finally, the Bible is our guidebook in both temporal and eternal life. So we've got to use it, even when the discussions remind us of hurtful experiences. And so it is with our topic today, marriage. And I'm not unmindful that there are folks here who want to be married, those who are... who used to be but are no longer, or maybe going through marital difficulties as we speak. Again, it's not my intention to make it more difficult. You know, I'm not an expert on marriage, but it's my hope today that God's Word will ingrain in all of us the importance of this marital union and help us each to find out how we can best view and practice marriage and pass that on. Now, you might ask, why are we talking about marriage in the middle of a series about passing on faith to our children and grandchildren? As I said, last month we talked about church and family and, and the relational uh, connection within the family. So in order to have that, we've got to start with marriage. Before the gift of children is the gift of marriage. Uh, and so we must, in order to have the ability to pass that on, we've got to have a solid family unit which starts with and depends upon solid marital union. Now, if somebody were to come here today and, and hear this message, they might conclude that this is just the annual message about marriage, obligatory as it may be. And maybe it serves that purpose, I don't know. But we want to today try to lay some foundation and then start talking about some practical ways to develop and maintain a first chair, rock-solid marriage, which in turn uh, is basic to passing on genuine faith to the younger generations. So, uh, actually, uh, this topic is going to take a couple of messages uh, because it's enormous. Uh, but in addition, today, I want to conclude 
with some comments about July the 4th, given the situation in which we find ourselves. Uh, and it's not directly related to marriage, but in learning how to respond to some of the things currently being said about our country has a direct bearing uh, on our topic of relational connection with the young. So today you're going to get two messages in the space of one, and my hope was to make it a little shorter given the festivities afterwards. I'm not sure I'm going to make it, so let's pray that I do. <laughs> Father in heaven, we give all praise and glory to you. Father, we are grateful for the gifts that you have given us. We are grateful for those who have gone before us and given their lives that we might enjoy uh, those gifts in the freest country in the world. Father, we pray that you would be with us today and help us to understand and learn more about what it means to form one from two in the marriage union. We give you all praise and glory and ask that you'd open minds and hearts to your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Christy and I grew up in a culture in which marriage was the norm, okay? Uh, I knew one uh, single mom who was the den mother of our Cub Scout pack. Uh, she was a couple blocks away. Everybody on my block uh, each home had two married parents. Today, on our block, there is one other married couple. Uh, this norm has definitely faded through the social consequences of the sexual revolution, the feminist movement, irresponsible fathers, easy divorce, cohabitation, redefinition of the word marriage itself, and most recently, the postmodern denial of the reality that God made us male and female. Now, while marriage, some might say, is on life support, it's still alive, it's still foundational to our culture. Now, many rightly point the finger at the failure of the church to uphold these standards in its teachings. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill, a uh, English evangelist of the 20th century, once said, if Jesus had preached the same message that ministers preach today, he would have never been crucified. And I think that's true in spades today. Just, but just as self-destructive is the failure of individual couples in applying and living out what the Bible teaches about marriage. And of course, that's viewed by the world as another example of religious hypocrisy. So whatever the reasons, we need to get our own house in order. We need to teach and encourage whether we're married or not and practice a consistent biblical approach to marriage if we hope to have any credibility with those outside and particularly the young. So I'm going to talk today about certain building blocks that make up a rock-solid marriage. Uh, I'm just going to hit a couple today and, Lord willing, more next time. And the first one we're going to start with is preparing for marriage. Uh, and this starts very early, usually well before it's even on the radar, well before we're even thinking about it. For the unmarried, we should use as rock-solid uh, foundational uh, principle here what Hebrews tells singles to look forward to and keep for their future marriage. It says in chapter 13, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. 
whether for fornicators before marriage or adulterers afterwards, God will judge. Pretty serious words. In other words, waiting for marriage before engaging in sexual intimacy is God's plan. We honor marriage and God by waiting to have that one flesh physical relationship only in marriage. Not waiting may not destroy, but it does cheapen the marital union and, of course, brings on many other problems that we would rather not have. Also consider this. In Proverbs 31, it describes the virtuous woman. And among other virtues, it says, an excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So her husband trusts in her because she's totally loyal to him. But the key phrase I want to look at here is she does him good all the days of her life. So the question, what does all mean? And I'm going to suggest to you my surprising conclusion that all means all. And what that means is that all the days of her life mean not only while she's married, but before she's married, because that includes all the days of his life, even before she knows who he is. She remains pure and saves herself for him until God brings her into uh, a relationship and eventual union with him. Now, guys, we social conservatives tend to dismiss certain words that are used by the political left. One such word is sexist, and I'm going to use it now. I would urge you, uh, I would suggest that you not make the sexist mistake of assuming that proverb only applies to the woman you marry and not you. It's a biblical principle I view it as. Do you want that woman's heart to trust in you? If so, should you not do good to her all the days of your life, even before you know who she is? Now, if you question my interpretation, which is fine, I just suggest that you sit down with a group of women, married and unmarried, and ask them what they think about my interpretation. Uh, I think you'll, you'll get it. Parents, uh, you know, I know this is convicting because my suspicion is that most of us did not do good all the days of our lives for our present spouse. However, if we desire God's blessing on our children, we should hold up God's best for them. And you can be honest about your mistakes and tell them what you learned by those mistakes. Now, two parents of the unmarried and those looking forward to marriage, you must first understand that marriage is not moving from childhood to adulthood. The transition we find here is in Genesis 2, which is our key verse for today. Now listen carefully to the wording. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, some versions use cleave, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And on your sheet you'll see the question, what is it that leaves father and mother and cleaves to a wife? It's that word we don't pay much attention to usually. It's a man. It doesn't say child, intern, or trainee. 
the, uh, the word there in Hebrew is ish, meaning man or sometimes husband. And the direct inference is that, is that when he leaves, he is a person of maturity and ready to assume the heavy responsibility of total care for and love towards a wife and, if God blesses, towards children. How does he get there? Well, common sense would tell us that he is trained in the home in which he grew up. Parents are not to send out a son to Mary who is still in training, and certainly not a male child who happens to be over the age of 18 but is still living in the basement playing video games. Of course, you know, no amount of training is going to prepare any man for all the twists and turns of joining with a woman in marriage. But the basics need to be in place. You know, basics such as knowing God's plan for marriage, how to love and honor his wife, even when she's not so lovable. Certainly the motivation and ability to provide for a family, but so much more. Uh, and so in the training, especially in the teen years when he's starting to develop, he needs to be given more and more responsibility and allow him to see the consequences of failure uh, because that's a life lesson. Like most training, it is better caught than taught. So having a first chair rock-solid example of two becoming one is the absolute best way to train. This should make us recognize the devastating effect of fatherlessness in so many homes today. Casual attitudes about sex, love, and marriage, or even the need to marry, have real consequences. Think of the countless sons and daughters who have a poor or no example to guide in one of the most important relationships, the most important relationship on earth that they will ever have. Of course, the same is true for daughters who must be trained by word and example to honor and love their husbands and become one with him as well. Now, in that passage in Genesis, there's another word that is important. It is leave. Now, have you ever been to a wedding and hear the parents of one or the other say, I didn't lose a son or a daughter. I gained a daughter or a son, whatever it may be. And I get it, you know. Uh, that's a feel-good thing, and you do have a new relationship with that in-law. Uh, and I consider the, 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 children, the, the sons and daughters-in-law as my children relationally, uh, and we have a good relationship. Yet, I did lose sons and daughters from my household when he or she left and became part of another family and household and somebody else's to love and care for with reciprocity. That new family is responsible for itself. Practically, that means that parents do not have authority over that new household and cannot intrude except to warn of outright sin, which you would do with any other believer that you love. Uh, my sons are heads of their respective households and are responsible to God for that wife and any children that God may bring. My daughters, upon marriage, become part of their husband's household. Neither remain under the authority of their parents. As parents of children in the household, our relationship is one of authority and responsibility to prepare for life and marriage. 
As parents of married children, that relationship changes to one of counsel. Practically speaking, this means that we as parents must, it hurts, but hold our tongues when we see our married kids making decisions we would not make on certain matters of discretion. Yeah, as I said, we would warn if we see our married children heading over the cliff in some way, just like any true friend will do. But in general, we have to wait for them to ask for counsel. And for counsel to be sought, it really helps to develop relationships before they leave the home. Another facet of leaving is that the newlyweds cannot run to mommy and daddy at the first sign of disagreement, which will inevitably come. Now, please understand the balance of what I'm trying to say here. In marriage, there must be a commitment to work out problems. The first resort cannot be to return to the home you just left. Of course, there are exigent circumstances, difficulties, crises, and somebody needs shelter or somebody, some sort of necessary assistance just to live, and our children know that we will always be there to assist, and we know they will always, we, that they will always be there to assist us. But for the internal relationship, they can ask for counsel, but they are responsible to work that out with their spouse and God. Lastly, I want to give a, a bit of practical advice for the young looking forward to marriage. Uh, the premarital counseling that Christy and I received from the minister who conducted our ceremony uh, consisted of one brief conversation. And while he didn't mention the topic during that conversation, on the way out the door, he handed us a brochure about sex. Period. That was it. Uh, now, by the grace of God, we just celebrated our 46th anniversary and Chrissy was clearly God's choice as my perfect mate. However, according to the statistics, we are an anomaly. Premarital counseling is simply a better way to discover and deal with certain issues beforehand to avoid surprises. Nobody likes those kinds of surprises and major disappointment later. There are significant issues in joining together for life. You, you, you've been brought up in different homes with different practices, uh, issues like finances, sex, children, previously undisclosed moral failure, temperament, and how are you going to handle conflict? One of the criticisms that Christy and I have received from uh, some of our kids is that we did not teach them how to fight. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that criticism, but that's another issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, how to fight well, that is. That's why the studies show that couples who get counseling from trusted and experienced advisors are much more likely, far more likely, to stay together across the board. It's much better that couples work out those issues and even delay the event than to find out later that they came from different planets after the wedding. And because of the social pressures of an announced wedding date, I think it makes total sense for a couple who believe that marriage may be on the horizon to go through a similar pre-engagement process, at least read some books together. Now, once the date is announced, there's huge pressure to simply go ahead regardless of readiness. And of course, you can't foresee all problems. That's not the goal. But you should address those issues that are just below the surface of romantic love. 
This is not a command or requirement of anyone, just a wisdom issue. Next, I want to move on to the second building block, which is to guard your marriage relationship. And since we're talking about passing on faith, we're going to assume children here. The world of a small child is incredibly small. And so the example of parents to that child is incredibly large, whether good or bad. This is especially true of the child's view of marriage. Whether a, ch a child has parents in a great or a dysfunctional marriage, this is the one he or she knows, the example that child has to model. As a child matures, the child must eventually come to their own convictions and faith. A teen may desire what his parents model, may be repelled by the thought of marriage as modeled, or may learn from the mistakes of their parents and follow better examples. So, let's go back. Uh, I'm sure many of you have gone through these before, but let's cover a few basics just to understand the importance of God's design for marriage. And we'll start at the very beginning. In Genesis 1, God creates the universe, the stars, the planets, the plants, the creatures, everything. And then, as it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created mankind, male and female. He created them. So people are unique and special among the various species. We were created in God's image. And in that, within that image, God created two distinct types, male and female. Am I going too fast? Okay. All right. Good. So that begs the question, why two? Man, or God could have made man self-reproducing. Thank God he did not. We know that throughout creation, both are necessary. Noah had to get two of each kind for the ark. And cl but clearly God had a special purpose and plan for that very special relationship between man and woman. So to this point, God's creation requires a man and a woman. Can it be any two? Well, we know that for, for procreation, yeah. But God's plan did not stop at the propagation of the species. So just when was this marriage thing invented? Well, Genesis 2 mentions man and woman just a man and woman, so why can't you have that same relationship and sex with any person of the opposite sex? Well, the Bible gets to that in Genesis 2, where the text replays the creation account with more detail. God allows Adam to name all the creatures and see that they all go together, but there's nobody for him. And he knows he's not attracted to any of the animals, so God then blesses him for his work with the creation of the first woman. And then the man said, this at last, I think he was waiting anxiously, at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
So this was something special in God's plan, as the text immediately discloses, which is our verse for today. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God's plan for marriage is declared literally in the beginning. It was a plan so special, so intimate, yet so much more than physical that it's later described as a type or image of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, in Ephesians 5. So these two formed the first union, the first marriage, and they were together as one in the garden, and all was perfect. That is, until Genesis 3, when Satan tempted and the problem of sin arises. Uh, up to that point, God's plan was being perfectly carried out in what we call monogamy, one man and one woman. But that was eventually corrupted. Man in sin took multiple wives and concubines, what we now call polygamy, which we see through much of the Old Testament. But God had already made clear his plan in the law found in Exodus and Deuteronomy, where he said, you shall not commit adultery. In other words, have sex, sexual relationships with anybody other than your spouse. The law also said, you shall not covet your neighbor's spouse. Uh, Jesus later made it clear that the spirit of the law when, uh, was that if you lust after a woman, you are committing adultery with her in your heart. High standard. Now, if we recognize God's plan for marriage and we really believe God knows better than we do, that his plan is better than any that man can come up with, then it makes sense not just to follow the plan, but to be committed to it, to have a conviction about it. On the horizontal or human level, a word to describe that relationship is loyalty or fidelity or faithfulness. Loyalty in marriage includes not just sexual purity, but many, many other things. Being loyal, guarding your marriage involves a mental choice both before and during marriage. That mental choice is to be totally committed to the marriage. At the altar, we each commit to be loyal until death do us part for as long as we both shall live. Bruce Wilkinson, who I, I mentioned at the beginning of the series, is one of the authors that I've studied for this, describes a spectrum or levels of commitment. Uh, he starts with uh, an absolute attitude about parting that he calls never, never. But when sin enters in, it can slip, and it can become, well, I hope we don't part, I, or we probably won't, well, or maybe we will. We probably will, and I hope we do. And finally, one can get to a sever, sever mental attitude. And he describes loyalty as staying in the never, never commitment box, never allowing the thought of infidelity or leaving to enter your mind. Now, in growing up, when I saw the damage uh, by unfaithfulness of Vincent men through the family history that I heard and how much my own parents' struggles hurt me, I made a commitment to stay in the never, never box. Uh, knowing the weakness of the flesh, though, I have asked all who know me, my, my children and others, that if, that if I am ever, ever unfaithful, if I ever leave my beloved, they should consider me as nothing. 
I'm aware of the reality that we're all sinners and that marriages do fall apart. However, our imperfection does not mean we should not hold up God's best to those we love. The fact that we live with a spouse with the best of intentions does not mean we will not have problems, disagreements, arguments. Marriages are made up of people. People are imperfect. People are sinners. Conflict does not equate to a failed marriage. It's how we handle the conflict that makes the difference. So let's take a look at some other practical steps that we can take. The first one on your sheet I've entitled Burn Your Ships. There's other metaphors, but the Spanish explorer Cortez landed on the coast of Mexico in 1519 to search for gold, and he knew this was going to be a perilous quest. By some accounts, after disembarking, he had the ships in the harbor burned so that his men knew there was no running home when they encountered those dangers. That's what we need to do emotionally when we wed. The old flames must be extinguished and never rekindled. This is especially true in our day of social media. It used to be that time and geography, people moving all over, protected from those emotional attachments of years gone by. And as I understand now, and I'm not on Facebook, but I think you can find anybody just about and say, hi, how are you doing after all these years? I would suggest that you just don't respond or be very clear if you do. I received a phone call one time from uh, uh, a, a woman who I had dated in high school, and it was just a friendly conversation. It was out of the blue. I have no idea how she got my phone number. Uh, and uh, I decided that responding, the best way to respond after that was to simply send her a picture of my family. Uh, to say, I'm good, I'm happily married, because I didn't know her intentions. Could have been just to be friends, but I figured that the, seeing that horde would scare just about anybody away if they did have a wrong intent. <laughs> so, the same is true of coworkers or acquaintances. If there's any kind of attraction, even just as friends, it's best to maintain a healthy distance and avoid compromising situations. Burn the ships or burn the bridges, whatever you want to say, that provide any opportunity. Just don't go there. Uh, the next one is to reorder priorities. Temptations that damage marriages don't have to be people. They can be activities like work, sports, hobbies, video games, other, cre other recreation. If the activity in any way detracts from first your relationship with God and second with your spouse, it is a wrong priority. A good exercise that you might try is to list your own priorities and list what you think your spouse's priorities are and have he or her, him or her do the same and then compare the two and have a talk about whether any priorities need to be re-examined and ask yourself, Am I willing to change my priorities or even give up an activity or a passion if that's what it takes to guard my marriage? Overlooking irritating differences. This is one we all get to share in. Whether it's the way that the paper rolls off, the, you know, the toilet paper roll, you know, or how you squeeze the, the toothpaste uh, tube, 
uh, this should not be an issue, but sometimes it is. You know, several of our sons and daughters-in-law have mentioned that the Vincents always fold their towels in thirds, not in halves and quarters. It's not a big deal. It's just a joke, but they sometimes have brought it up. Uh, we all develop these from our home of origin, and we should be tolerant with those small differences. One of the earliest challenges in my marriage with Christy was the question of how to mix frozen concentrate into orange juice or not. <laughs> Remember, you, you and I all have these irritating tendencies, and if it's really a bad habit or blind spot, be patient and help your partner understand why ditching the habit will help your marriages, and of course, be willing to change yourself because you probably got some coming back. Be gracious when real difficulties arise. All marriages hit times of genuine crisis, hardship, stress, illness, conflict, a lost job, a hospitalization, strong disagreements over a number of issues, finances, of course, troubled teens, how to care for aging parents, lots of issues can come up. And when these issues hit and tension or anxiety arise, show grace to your spouse. Remind each other that you are one and that you cannot allow this problem to divide you. In my practice, I've had the privilege of dealing with people who are going through some of these struggles, like a spouse with a debilitating condition. And it is such a blessing to see the other spouse take care of and nurse that suffering spouse because of lifelong loyalty. An example among us is Bill Bider, who demonstrated complete loyalty to Robin until she went home. I'm going to end our discussion about marriage today with a pretty tough issue. I suspect that we have all hurt somebody, somebody that we love. I know I have. Now, without detailing all the possible scenarios, let's just agree that when someone hurts us, we have to choose to forgive or not. When one is hurt by a life partner, of course, it is so much easier to forgive when there is repentance, when they come and ask for forgiveness. But what about the situation where there is no repentance on the part of the offending spouse? I think if you study this question, you're going to find there's a couple of views. Recently, I heard a radio pastor say that forgiveness is not in order here. His authority for that position was that Jesus' command was to love our enemies, not forgive them. I'm not sure how I feel about that rationale. On the other hand, you will find many teachers who say that even when there is no remorse, the biblical admonition is forgiveness. And they'll point it like Matthew 18. After Jesus explains how to handle an offense, then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. Some versions say 70 times seven. In other words, whatever. In Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 uh, Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, 
neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Let me ask, what's the worst offense that one can commit against a spouse or any person? Does murder come to mind? Yeah. Well, Acts 6 records the preaching and stoning of Stephen just before he died and certainly before there was any repentance by anybody, including Paul, who was Saul at the time and watching this murder. He cried out, Stephen cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Likewise, when our Lord and Savior was on the cross, absence of any repentance and confession was clear when Jesus said during his crucifixion, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Okay, I call that unilateral or personal forgiveness. It has the distinct benefit of removing the issue from your thoughts. One who forgives avoids the problem of being eaten up from the inside out with bitterness. However, there's another view which I will call the transactional or bilateral forgiveness, which starts with the biblical injunctions in Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then also in Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. They argue that we are to forgive as God has forgiven. And then they rightly point out that we are not forgiven unless we repent of our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, forgiveness is not just for the benefit of the offended person, but primarily for the offender. Therefore, this position argues true forgiveness in this transactional sense requires that the the offender seek forgiveness. Confession of sin is not an act of self-condemnation, but of seeking God's provision for a remedy for that sin in forgiveness through Christ. And this means that the offended party, the offendee, we might say, should not take the offender off the hook or short-circuit the Holy Spirit by voicing forgiveness before the offender repents. Now, those who teach transactional forgiveness point out that Jesus said offenses or sins against others are inevitable in Luke 17. However, it continues, pay attention to yourselves, this is Jesus, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, the downside of personal forgiveness is that, as we've said, it is one-sided and that only one side is benefited by removing bitterness. The problem with transactional forgiveness is the offended person assuming that the rebuke, the confrontation, or the Matthew 18 process has not been effective cannot make or cause the offender to repent. That's the Holy Spirit's job, but that leaves the offended person in the throes of bitterness. So, who's right? We have good and godly teachers on both sides. Now, some of you may disagree with me, 
But I think the answer is both. Both are valid positions. Therefore, I would say that you take the best from both positions. Uh, it's not a cookie-cutter answer, but I would suggest for one offended, particularly in the marital relationship, practice personal forgiveness to avoid the self-destruction of bitterness. As a side note, in a very important side note, I would highly recommend that a deeply offended spouse should first make sure there is no offense on his or her side. Because, again, in my practice, what I've seen is that disputes are rarely black and white. All the faults on one side and none on the other. That's why Jesus said to first remove the log from your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the splinter in the eye of another. Now after that confrontation or whatever you might call it, what the offended spouse says on the issue is a matter of discernment. The question I think is what will cause or assist or leave fertile ground for the Holy Spirit to work in the unrepentant spouse's heart. It's possible that expressing one-sided forgiveness may help bring about that particular change. Proverbs in Romans 12 tell us that if instead of vengeance you do good to your enemies, you will heap burning coals on his or her head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. However, you may discern that a one-sided grant of forgiveness uh, won't really convict or lead to repentance. So perhaps you only convey that you desire reconciliation and you want to, to forgive. So the offender knows that forgiveness is possible. I admit this is my interpretation, okay? That's just how I would view it. It's... Uh, it depends on the circumstances and the relationships involved. Uh, to end out our discussion on marriage, I will mention that there are many, many resources today that were not available to Christy and me uh, that will help in preparing for and maintaining a solid first chair marriage. You know, we may even use one in an upcoming Sunday school. And if you would like to learn more or need help, Please ask us. Good marriages are essential to our culture because first chair marriages are essential to the church. It's worth passing on. Lord willing, we'll come back to this topic next time. Okay. Um, I want to say a few words about uh, today. Okay. And this is, as you know, a special day. Uh, and we mentioned that our series is about passing on genuine faith to the generations that follow. And obviously, to pass on genuine faith, we must overcome certain obstacles in relationships. One of those obstacles is that at present, we are in a very difficult time in our culture. I don't think anybody has any problems with fireworks. But the celebration of the beginning of our country is questioned by some, especially among the young. I personally have had emotional reaction when the national anthem is being played at sporting events and people look around and talk to each other. 
I've gotten internally upset because I know that people have died to keep those freedoms that we enjoy. So, you know, I may just be talking to myself when I make these comments, but I'm still learning. I'm going to give them anyway. Um, when I take a step back, I must understand that many simply have not been taught that respect. So in response, I or we have to choose. We can dismiss these people as juvenile or unpatriotic. And I think that will pretty much end the conversation and any passing on of faith. Or we can try to engage and influence them. Let's take a look at our situation today. Uh, liberal and progressive uh, political types attack our country as evil. And some of them, not all, but some appear to have the intent to divide us for political advantage. But yet they ignore the obvious inconsistency. If our nation is so bad, why do so many people want in and nobody wants to leave? Including those people who said they would leave five years ago if a certain person was elected president. They didn't. <laughs> However, conservatives will take the polar opposite position that this is the best nation in history but they'll ignore or gloss over the past and present sins of our country. Christians, as bystanders, will usually applaud the political and social conservative position, yet, at the same time, we will decry the moral decay of our people and wonder why God's judgment has not dropped like an anvil a la Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, go figure. I suggest that we take a step back and recall who we are. You know, there are many famous and great names in the founding of our country. But let me ask you this question. Are you and I followers of Washington and Adams, Jefferson, Henry, or Hamilton? Or are we followers of Christ? Put another way, is it our goal to win an argument in the contemporary debate? Or is it to pass on genuine faith and to be used by God to help win souls, even those from the opposite political view, for Him? Please remember, there's always two sides to every issue. We must always take both sides into consideration before we engage and avoid knee-jerk reactions. So, rather than doing what the other side expects, which is, I think in this group, defend old glory to the death, we should recall our goal and try a better way to respond. That is, if we want to be effective. When somebody de defames our country or the flag and you have the opportunity to respond, First, consider how can I get this person to actually listen to me and think? How can I earn a hearing? Well, certainly being gracious and calm will be very helpful. But beyond that, we might be more effective if we freely admit the obvious. That ours is not now, nor has it ever been, a perfect nation for a reason.
because it's made up of people. And people are sinners. In fact, it was founded by people who were sinners. There are evils in our culture. We hate them. But they're present nonetheless. They're part of our reality. Think sex trafficking and abortion. Some people resist those evils more than others do. Some shrug their shoulders and go on with business as usual. Some really don't care. Some participate in those evils. And those evils continue. A culture is a very difficult thing to change. That's just the nature of sinful man in a broken, fallen world. There were evils in the culture of our founders. Think slavery. Some of them opposed it, some ignored it, and some accepted and even participated in it. What's the difference? Well, thankfully, the difference is that the evil of slavery was recognized and abolished in the United States, unlike many other countries. We even had to fight a war, and many on both sides were killed to satisfy or settle the issue of the legality of slavery. Yet the Civil War did not end discrimination or prejudice. It's not ended still completely. There are far more people enslaved in the world and in the United States today than there were at the beginning of the Civil War. As we suffer from the consequences of past sins, we're learning how God would have us better deal with our present sins and prejudices. To whom are you more likely to listen? The person who thinks he or she is always right, never makes a mistake, and is dogmatic about everything? Or the person who admits faults and blind spots and is willing to listen to others? If you want to change your heart, if you truly strive to pass on genuine faith, please consider a thing called credibility, which we gain from a thing called humility. Remember that Christ loves a humble and a contrite heart. And it's only as we imitate Christ that we become truly or approach true humility. As imperfect as we are and our country is, we have more freedoms at this time than all the rest of the world. Some do abuse that freedom for evil. That's where the gospel comes in, and that's our primary mission. Our founders were imperfect. In fact, why would anyone be surprised that slavery came in when our country began? It was baked into the culture. In fact, it was all over the world. That doesn't justify it, but what would you expect from sinners who were brought up in that culture? It took about a century, but our country changed that culture and set the example for the rest of the world. However, those same imperfect found founders did a masterful job of framing a nation and a constitution that has, not perfectly, but largely protected us from dictators and anarchy. Let me ask you parents a question here. Do your young children know why we celebrate today? Is it just to hear loud booms? Uh, you know, think about this. In our culture, Christmas has largely become about Santa, decorated trees, and gifts. Easter about bunnies and hats and eggs. 
And the fourth is largely about just fireworks, right? Please teach your children or send them to Steve Eilis American History class so they can understand the significance of this day. Not all, but some of the drafters of the Declaration of Independence owned slaves. Yet, they themselves penned the words that would make slavery indefensible. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is that declaration that we celebrate today, and it is a worthy celebration. For all these celebrations, Christmas, Easter, whatever, let's keep the main thing the main thing. I don't have an overhead, so if the worship team will come out now, I'll finish off here. As for our celebration today, it's, it is to remember the beginning of our country and to give thanks for God's work in using imperfect and sinful people to form an imperfect yet more perfect union, which has been a light to an imperfect and sinful world. So let's give thanks to God for that blessing. Let's also remember, though, that to whom much is given, much is required. I'm going to pray now, and I'll also pray for the food so that when you go through the line, you can just do it without any problems with your conscience, and, and uh, then, then we'll start our worship time. Father in heaven, you are so good, and you have blessed us so much. Lord, help us not to become complacent. Help us to understand that there is still rampant sin in our midst. Help us to understand that there is a lost world in our neighborhoods, that they need Christ. Help us never to forget that we have a mission while we're here. Lord God, we give you all praise and all glory. We thank you for the privilege we have today to celebrate the founding of a country, an imperfect country by imperfect people that has been established with many of the principles that you have taught. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the food that we partake in the event to come up. We pray that you would bless our conversations, that we could edify and encourage one another. We pray that you would give us encouragement to reach out to others who don't know Christ as Savior, who will repent and come to know him as their Lord. Thank you, Father, for your blessings and for this day, and may you be with us throughout. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.